Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a last-minute effort by Secretary of State Blinken to head off a war between Russia and Ukraine, with first negotiations in Ukraine, then a meeting in Geneva on Friday with Russia's Foreign Minister Lavrov. Joining us to assess whether this last-ditch effort at diplomacy will bridge the considerable divide between Russia and the US and NATO as hawks on both sides rattle sabers is Christopher Shivers, a senior fellow and director of the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. With more than two decades of experience working on US foreign policy and national security challenges, He previously served in the United States Department of Defense and most recently served as a U.S. National Intelligence Officer for Europe at the National Intelligence Council. We'll discuss his article at The Guardian, If Diplomacy Fails with Russia, We All Lose, Biden Must Not Abandon Talks, and his concerns as a former top intelligence official that war will likely break out within weeks unless a diplomatic path is found leaving Biden no choice but to act on his threats while the Ukrainian people endure immense suffering and Russia and China forge closer ties in a world with worsening geopolitical fault lines. Then, as Biden's first year in office comes at a time his domestic agenda is stalled and there are more Americans hospitalized by COVID than at any previous time during the pandemic, we will speak with Paul Glastrus, the editor-in-chief of the Washington Monthly, who was a special assistant and senior speechwriter to President Bill Clinton. He wrote over 200 speeches for the president on subjects ranging from education to health care to the budget, and we will discuss his latest article at the Washington Monthly, What Joe Biden Should Say, a transcript of President Joe Biden's 2022 State of the Union address, if he'd let me write it. Then finally, as the Senate debates what appears to be a futile effort to change the filibuster rules, We'll speak with Valeria Sinclair Chapman, a professor of political science and director of the Center for Research on Diversity and Inclusion at Purdue University, whose work focuses on American political institutions, legislative politics, minority representation in Congress, and minority political participation. She is the author of Countervailing Forces in African-American Political Activism, 1973-1994, to and we will assess the chances of democracy surviving in this country. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Christopher Shivers, who's a senior fellow and director of the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. With more than two decades of experience working on U.S. foreign policy and national security challenges, he previously served in the United States Department of Defense and most recently served as the U.S. National Intelligence Officer for Europe at the National Intelligence Council. Andy has an article at The Guardian, If Diplomacy Fails with Russia, We All Lose. Biden Must Not Abandon Talks. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christopher Shivers. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And if you follow Russian state media, and to some extent our own media, 
The demonization on both sides is quite alarming. It has echoes of the worst period during the Cold War in the early 1980s when there was a, a genuine war scare in 1983 over a NATO exercise. And the problem there was the perceptions on both sides were so wrong. The Soviets thought we were going to use an exercise uh, as a springboard for a real attack, and they went on nuclear alert. And on our side, we thought, well, we're virtuous. We're not going to do that. So they didn't take it seriously. So are we getting into that situation where, in other words, are we not getting past our perceptions about each other and dealing with realities? I mean, I think the exercise that you're referring to is, is probably Abel Archer, which was a sort of um, you know, key moment in the Cold War, War where things really came to a head. Both sides ended up very scared after that and actually uh, realized that they needed to take steps to, uh, in particular, diplomatic steps in order to um, lower overall tensions. And those steps are, of course, what ultimately led uh, to the end of the Cold War and uh, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. I, I have to say, I'm not sure that we're in exactly the same uh, moment here. I mean, I think certainly there is a, a very, very heightened uh, level of concern and frustration that I'm seeing uh, here in Washington uh, and in other Western capitals about the Russian threat to Ukraine. It's hard for me to say whether or not uh, Russia itself is misperceiving uh, anything that the United States is doing uh, or that NATO is doing. I think they're simply objecting uh, to the fact that NATO has uh, enlarged into what they consider to be their sphere of influence uh, and uh, that NATO is, is unwilling for, for many reasons um, to, uh, to commit to ending that, that enlargement of, their, of NATO territory even uh, if it might uh, result in some kind of a way, even if that might be a way of averting war over, over Ukraine. So is there a place then, a compromise that can be found between Russia's concerns about its own security or meeting Russia's concerns about its security and the aspirations of people in countries like Ukraine and and the Baltic states and Poland and all the other states that were a part of the Soviet Union. If you, from their point of view, what Putin offers is gangster government, like the thug in Belarus. So how do you navigate between those the aspirations of people who want democracy and the rule of law at the same time satisfy Russia's security concerns? It's extremely difficult, and, and that's why we've been in this position with Russia now for, uh, for you know, 20, 20 years plus. Um, you know, I, I think that the, the fact of the matter is, is that we, we don't actually know uh, whether or not there's any kind of uh, diplomatic effort that could salvage this situation and prevent a Russian uh, invasion, another Russian invasion of Ukraine. The point that, that I've been making, however, is that we don't really know until we, we give it a try. Um, and I, I felt that there were you know, too many people who, after last week's talks, um, which were really only very preliminary in nature, I've been involved in these kinds of talks, including with the Russians uh, in the past, um, that was really only the first step of a very, very long process. And I felt that there were too many people who were saying, well, since we didn't get a breakthrough immediately, uh, it's time to give up uh, and move to more military kinds of measures. Um, the fact is, we won't know whether or not we can find some solution to this challenge until 
until we try and really sit down uh, and until we're willing to talk about at least some of the issues uh, that the Russians are um, are demanding we talk about. Certainly, you know, as in all diplomacy, there's no way that both sides are going to emerge from any agreement, you know, were it to, were it to come about, um, completely satisfied uh, in terms of their overall demands. So there's, that means that there's no way that, you know, all of Russia's demands could, could be met, but that's part of the diplomacy itself. The question is whether there is, you know, one or two specific issues uh, with regard to Ukraine's uh, geopolitical future in particular, uh, that would prevent uh, this war from taking place. Well, I brought up Abel Archer only because when the first deployment of Russian troops on the borders happened a year ago, Putin did go on to full nuclear alert, which was, I think, incredibly alarming in itself. So at the end of the day, do you think that both sides can be sober about the consequences of a war in Europe, which is just almost unthinkable, but... As you point out in your article at The Guardian, Christopher Chivas, if diplomacy fails with Russia, we all lose, and Biden must not abandon talks. Do you think Putin understands how much he will lose? Because that's one of the, the things that the EU and the US have made clear. They, they will even ramp up the sanctions and maybe cut him from the SWIFT system, etc. So I just am wondering whether both sides have sober moments recognizing what a catastrophe a war would be, a full-scale war. Maybe Putin will nibble off a bit of the Donbass or something on the Black Sea coast and do a small thing, but a real war would be an utter catastrophe for all. And that's uh, what you yes, point I, out. I, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, you know, it, it's very hard to get inside uh, President Putin's head and, and know what he's thinking. Uh, he, he often behaves in ways that uh, surprise us. Um, so uh, even though it, it's, it's, it's a certainty, or as near as we can have to a certainty in, in international affairs, that if the Russian forces move into Ukraine, Russia itself will face very severe uh, consequences economically, in terms of its relationship with Europe, which is really its, its most important geopolitical relationship. Uh, and obviously in terms of its relationship with the United States, um, you know, you know, and, and that's the reason why, you know, I hope that there is some, some trade space for a diplomatic, uh, a diplomatic deal is because, you know, Russia and Putin in particular must, must recognize that on, on some level. Um, you know, but ultimately the question is, uh, you know, Putin may see it as he has a lot to gain in terms of um, building his legacy as the man who, in his view, uh, rescued uh, Russia from the difficult time uh, that it passed through in the decade after the end of the Soviet Union. Uh, and if he, you know, reunites Ukraine with Russia, for him, that may be enough to pay those larger costs, because after all, they're not going to fall on his shoulders. Right, but it's not going to succeed, is it? I mean, a uh, full-scale invasion, uh, wouldn't that result in endless guerrilla war? Would it result in the Baltic states and Poland and the European partners in NATO, along with the United States, increasing their defense budgets enormously? I don't see how it could be a win for him. Well, I think you'd almost certainly see, uh, and this is one of the challenges for the Biden administration, you'd almost certainly see an enormous amount of pressure for uh, you know, more U.S. forces in uh, in Central Europe, uh, you know, the beefing up of the NATO's frontline defenses uh, along the, the border with Russia and the Baltic states uh, in Poland, also in, in southeastern Europe. Um, 
So all of that would be would be very costly uh, for the United States. It would distract this administration here in Washington from its aim of trying to refocus um, U.S. strategic competition on on Asia and on China in particular. You know, but on the other hand, a, a militarization of or an increased militarization of that part of the world, uh, you know, frankly, could have benefits for uh, some of the hardliners in Russia who who may be happier uh, to see a world in which um, in which there are these sort of clear lines uh, drawn between NATO, uh, NATO and Russia. With regard to Ukraine itself, it's very hard to say how uh, a Russian military operation would play out. Obviously, by nature of being a military operation, it would be very unpredictable. Um, my guess is you would see a significant amount of resistance from you know some some large part of the Ukrainian population, which would make it uh, difficult for Russia to achieve its its military objectives without um, you know a great deal of bloodshed in the process. Whether or not the Russians are willing to tolerate the same levels of bloodshed uh, in Ukraine um, that they were willing to tolerate, for example, in their operations in the North Caucasus uh, or in Syria, uh, I think is 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 uncertain. So yes, I agree, it would be difficult uh, for Russia, um, but that doesn't mean that it would be impossible for them to take at least a significant portion of the country militarily. So is there something going on then in in Putin's mind, given how much he uh, dominates Russia and how much he's able to sort of increase his tenure arbitrarily, it seems. When you mentioned the U.S. has got other priorities, particularly China, etc., and we all recall that President Obama wanted to pivot towards Asia, and I think Biden has made similar suggestions as well, particularly we want to get out of the Middle East, which we seems to have accomplished largely, but getting bogged down in a European war, does that make Putin more relevant? Is he doing this because he feels that, I mean, I believe he was felt very slighted when Obama said he was a regional, Russia was a regional power. So is there, is there something going on? His ideas of restoring the Soviet Union and getting back their dignity, unfortunately, seems to resonate in the country. They really do feel that they've been slighted as a people. And so... It sounds like we need a, a little psychology here in our foreign policy. Well, I mean, I think it's true that uh, certainly nationalism is a big driver of, of Russian foreign policy right now, and we shouldn't underestimate um, the extent to which the population would uh, be willing to support Putin in, in an operation like this simply because of nationalism. I mean, after all, he controls so much of the information that they consume, that it makes it much easier for him to, to make the case on a nationalist, a nationalist basis. Um, you know, I have that said, I, I've been skeptical um, over time of arguments who say, well, if we just, um, you know, we're, we're nicer uh, to Russia uh, and gave them more credit on the global uh, scene, they would behave differently than they do. I mean, I think a lot of Russian, uh, you know, foreign policy under Putin is driven by you know, Putin's own aspirations um, by Putin's own, I think it's genuine frustration with the way that the end of the Cold War played out and giving him more high level diplomacy um, probably isn't enough to, you know, to resolve those frustrations. I mean, he's going to want some kind of, of concrete concessions from the United States and from NATO. 
And those, you know, frankly, are, are extremely difficult uh, for for the Biden administration, the White House to give uh, simply because of the, the domestic pressure, um, because of the pressure from uh, allies, especially frontline allies uh, to whom the administration has you know, committed uh, to, you know, revitalizing the relationship after President um, Trump. Um, and then, you know, finally, because the last thing that uh, President Biden uh, wants to do is to sit down next to President Putin, do a deal uh, that can, makes a, a major concession on European security and then turn around and have Putin invade anyway. Um, that would only compound the president's uh, challenges that he's been facing uh, here on the on the domestic front. So I have to think that has to be that concern uh, has got to be in the forefront of uh, White House thinking right now. And it's probably the reason why they've sent the secretary of state uh, um, to undertake these uh, luckily uh, to undertake further talks with the Russians this week rather than going for a direct uh, president to president uh, phone call or meeting. And of course, Secretary of State Blinken will also I think he's going to Ukraine first, isn't he? That's correct. He's going to go to Kiev, as I understand it, uh, and then he will meet with Lavrov, I think, in Geneva. Right. And I think there's, what, seven U.S. senators in uh, Ukraine at the moment? That that sounds about right. Yeah. So I understand, I mean, I (laughs) I don't want to harp on the psychological aspects of it, but I understand the humiliation that Putin personally felt when the... East German regime collapsed and his residency was literally across from the um, Stasi headquarters and it was looted and and he and his wife, all they took with them from East Germany was a washing machine that they had to strap to the roof of, I think it was a Trabant, one of those little East German cars to drive all the way back to Russia. So I think there was a certain personal humiliation here, but at the end of the day, He's in charge of Russia. And do you think his focus seems to be so much on a rivalry with the United States and making life difficult for the U.S. as much as he can through active measures and all these other intelligence tricks that he has up his sleeve than he has about taking care of his own people? Is that a fair criticism? I mean, if, if he took care of his own people better, they wouldn't need to stoke nationalism, surely. Oh, I think that's 100 percent correct. Um, you know, I think uh, there is truth to the, um, you know, the observation that many historians have made over time that autocratic regimes uh, like Putin's regime, uh, simply because they they tend to, uh, you know, to over time to to clamp down more and more on personal freedoms uh, and they tend to run into more and more economic problems because of the corrupt nature of their politics that these regimes are, are more prone than many others to lash out uh, at, other, at other nations uh, and that they're more prone uh, than other regimes to get into to messy foreign wars in order to stoke that nationalism as a compensation for what they're not providing to their own citizens. So, yeah, I think that that is definitely uh, one, one good way of understanding what's, what's been going on with, with the Kremlin in the last decade. So just in closing, what are the odds of a war? And do you think Lincoln can do something to stop it? Because as your article points out, and as we've discussed, it would be a catastrophe for all sides. Nobody would win. And especially for the Ukrainians. I mean, it would be just so sad 
for them to have to go through this all over again. Um, it would also hurt, you know, neighboring countries with refugee flows uh, and all the other downsides that we've uh, talked about um, already. Um, all that said, I, I, I think I'd have to put the odds at, at fairly low. Um, I think that uh, I think that probably the Russians would would prefer to get their uh, gains in Ukraine without having to go to war for them. Um, but whether or not the United States uh, and especially some of our NATO allies are, are ready to offer them not, or even begin to consider offering them something that will keep them at the negotiating table, I think is is very hard to say. And as a consequence, if I had to lay my bets, I bet that we're going to see uh, we're going to see a war in Ukraine uh, at some point, uh, if not in the next couple of weeks, uh, at some time in the next in the next year or so. Well, Christopher Chavez, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Christopher Chavez, who's a senior fellow and director of the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. With more than two decades of experience working in U.S. foreign policy and national security challenges, he previously served in the United States Department of Defense and most recently served as a U.S. National Intelligence Officer for Europe at the National Intelligence Council. And he has an article at The Guardian, If Diplomacy Fails with Russia, We All Lose. Biden Must Not Abandon Talks. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining Biden's first year in office coming at a time his domestic agenda is stalled and there are more Americans hospitalized by COVID than at any previous time during the pandemic. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Paul Glastras, the editor-in-chief of The Washington Monthly, who spent 10 years as a correspondent and editor at U.S. News and World Report and was a special assistant and senior speechwriter to President Bill Clinton. He wrote over 200 speeches for the president on subjects ranging from education to health care and the budget. And his latest article at the Washington Monthly is What Joe Biden Should Say, a transcript of President Joe Biden's 2022 State of the Union address, if he'd let me write it. Welcome to Background Briefing, Paul Glastris. Great to be here. Well, there's no question that President Biden's approval ratings are tanking and his domestic agenda is is stalled, frustrated by members of his own party. And of course, you've got a new strain of COVID raging out of control with daily infections at a record level. More Americans are hospitalized now than at any previous point during the pandemic. And uh, I think it's Thursday, is it not? It's the one year anniversary of since President Biden's taken office. And the second year for a president is always a tough one. So you've set a pretty high bar for yourself, Paul, writing a State of the Union speech. I mean, what's he going to say? Because the pundits are starting to write him off already. Yeah. I mean, look, he, he everything he said is true. You kind of you can break the first year up into two, the first six months, his poll ratings were, were quite decent. And he achieved the American Rescue Plan, which 
along with other measures, was extraordinarily successful in getting the American economy going. And sort of then you had this switch, the pivot to the Build Back Better bill, this uh, massive reconciliation bill with all the climate and social spending in it. In between, you had the infrastructure bill. The Those two were tied together. And, you know, that's when things began to go awry. And I don't think you mentioned, but we've got this raging inflation of 7%. So there's a lot to unpack there. For the average person, jobs and wages are growing like crazy, but it has on average now been swamped by inflation that's slightly higher than the wage growth. And, and that more than anything else is, is what driving his poll numbers down. And I, I don't happen to think that the passage or non-passage of Build Back Better is the key. It's how people are experiencing their lives in their local economies and in their families and networks right now. And, you know, things are kind of on the one hand, on the other hand. My expectation and what I wrote, you know, the centerpiece, the central themes of the sort of mock State of the Union I wrote is for him to pivot against this last six months where the agenda was all spending, 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 which he can't seem to un- uncork from his fractured coalition and flip over to a different agenda, one that he's already begun, but he doesn't talk about very much. And that is rewriting the rules of the marketplace. And in particular, uh, taking on the corporate monopolies that are the source of the long-term downward spiral uh, of the average American's economic life. And, oh, by the way, could would be the beginnings of fixing the inflation problem too. But if he were to follow your advice in his uh, State of the Union address, talk about who's really to blame for inflation in, in the case of the rising price of pork and beef and poultry, which is one of the big drivers of inflation along with gasoline prices, you can blame that on these four companies, the monopolies. Uh, there's no question about it, one of which is Brazilian, another of which is Chinese. And then you also point out that the big supply chain problem with cars, for example, not being available because of lack of chips, and the big microchip company here in America that has a monopoly is Intel, and they bought up all their domestic competition, and then they outsourced everything overseas, and that's a big reason why there is this supply chain problem. But... When you make these cases and make these cases against Intel, for example, do you think the American people will understand or would they basically assume, well, you're the president, you ought to be able to fix it? So can the president do anything about these things? That seems to be the heart of it, isn't it? Well, A, he can do something about it. The one area where he has a fairly free hand is the enforcement of antitrust law. And just today, the administration announced a new standard by which they're going to uh, prosecute antitrust cases, monopoly cases. So that behind the scenes or just below the front page on page two or three of the paper, you know, there's activity there, but it is all being completely swamped uh, by news about best, you know, build back better and the voting stuff. You know, all of which is, is important and essential, but it's going nowhere. And look, I, I, I worked on two states of the union addresses for Bill Clinton, and 
I'm a little biased in that those speeches used to be criticized as, oh, he's in the weeds. He's trying to explain policy. The public loved them. The public is interested, especially those who are strongly or at least you know mildly supportive of the president. They love knowing what the president is actually doing with the power they gave him. And, you know, Bill Clinton was just very, very good and very insistent on explaining his policy agenda, his policy successes and so forth. What I do believe, to answer your question, that if Joe Biden were to get out there and explain what the problems are and explain what he's going to do about them, um, it would go a long way to to reviving the support of his base voters and very possibly bring along some others because the one thing about corporate um, power and its control over our lives and our economy is that it is felt by members of both parties, which is why you have bipartisan anti-monopoly bills moving through Congress right now. And again, I'm speaking with Paul Glastris, who's the editor-in-chief of The Washington Monthly, who spent 10 years as correspondent editor at U.S. News and World Report and was a special assistant and senior speechwriter to President Bill Clinton. He wrote over 200 speeches for the president on subjects ranging from education to health care to the budget. And his latest article of The Washington Monthly is What Joe Biden Should Say, a transcript of President Joe Biden's 2022 State of the Union address, if he'd let me write it. So... Obviously, one of the things that got Biden elected was the fact that he he was a veteran of the Senate. And I think the assumption was that he knows how to bring about some kind of bipartisan consensus and get things done with the other side. But we're in a different era, are we not, Paul? I mean, Trump is breaking norms right, left and center. So is Biden simply left with the option of executive orders? And could that be sort of the thrust of a, of his upcoming State of the Union address? Well, uh, I don't think so. I, look, he passed this enormous $2 trillion American rescue plan in March of last year. Um, it has helped fuel a booming job market. Um, he then passed a bipartisan infrastructure bill on top of a bipartisan transportation bill, and the money for that hasn't even begun to flow yet. And there's tremendous resources and power in those two pieces of legislation that he can begin to wield and that people can begin to feel. He's also put more members of the judiciary in of his choosing than any president in recent memory. Um, So he's gotten a lot done. The problem is all the focus is on two things, this Build Back Better bill where all the social spending is and, and the voting rights stuff. Well, the, the Build Back Better stuff isn't being blocked by Republicans. They, have, they aren't supporting it, but they never said they would. It's being blocked by the tension between the progressives in the party and a handful of conservatives or moderates who can't get together on a deal. And Joe Biden has been unable to make that deal happen. And, you know, this is maybe where Biden can take a little blame. I personally think he should have cut a deal and scaled it back and got got half a loaf months ago when it was clear Joe Manchin and others were just not going to bend. But the progressive side, you know, wanted what it wanted and wasn't going to take half a yes for an answer. And so right now they got nothing. That's been 
dis- very destructive to the Democratic Party, to Joe Biden, to his polls. It's been enervating, uh, uh, you know, de- uh, depressing to most Democrats. It's just enormously problematic. Um, so he's, you know, he's able to get some things done on the voting rights stuff. Again, um, Republicans are not going to support anything that leads in their minds to more Democratic votes. And there's a, a, a ulterior, larger agenda on the Republican side to, you know, work the at the state level, um, the machinery so that, you know, Donald Trump can win again. So, you know, that's a kind of a separate horrible thing. But even there, there is some room for a deal around re-engineering the Electoral Count Act, this sort of archaic and bumbling piece of legislation that Donald Trump almost used to win. There, there's something that could possibly be done there. But uh, that said, you are right. The strength that he has, the free hand that he has, is with executive orders, and especially in the area of antitrust. So the fact that a Quinnipiac poll just uh, has Biden's support amongst African-Americans really dropping sharply, and there's been a lot of criticism over this, of course, Martin Luther King Day yesterday. What's your sense then of, I mean, obviously Monday morning quarterbacking is a, is a waste of time, but nevertheless, do you think that maybe President Biden right at the outset, even in fact before he was sworn in, after all, January the 6th was at its core, an attack on voting. And I'm wondering whether voting rights should have been a major priority. And would it have been possible, do you think, if Biden would have taken on Trump in the way that he has recently and on voting rights at that early stage? And at that point, just after January the 6th, uh, even Mitch McConnell was advising Democrats that you can get rid of this guy. Trump is a menace to this country and to the world, and we are heading towards autocracy. And it seems to me that that might have been a moment to take this guy on before his big lie metastasized into the entire Republican Party, 80% of whom believe that Trump's the legitimate leader and Biden's illegitimate. I know it's Monday morning quarterbacking, but do you think that maybe the priorities were were a little wrong? No. Um, What was Joe Biden stepping in and uh, taking on Donald Trump at that moment going, how is that going to shift anything? Um, if anything, it would have you know, energized Trump's base earlier. And, uh, you know, rhetoric is important, but right. it, it doesn't fundamentally change, you know, unless it's backed with real policy, it doesn't fundamentally change things, you know, political dynamics. And what policy lever did he have? If, if anything's going to happen with Donald Trump, it's going to be the slow grinding of various lines of prosecution that he needs to stay the heck away from and that can't be really hurried, right? Um, right. And on the voting rights stuff, you know, he didn't have the votes. Not, the votes just aren't there. You can't manage. The problem is the Democrats didn't win enough Senate seats. That's right. the problem. And when you've got 50 senators, one of them can stop everything. And right. more than one of them are standing in the way of of the voting rights stuff. It's not just Joe Manchin, uh, the, you know, Senator from West Virginia or, or Kirsten Cinema of Arizona. It's Mark Kelly uh, of Arizona. It's, there's, there are 
you know, the senators like their um, ability to stop, you know, have individual ability to stop things. The filibuster is a horrible thing and it's got a racist past, but it does empower individual senators to, they don't want to give up that power. So that's not viable. So when you, you crank up the rhetoric to 11 on something you can't change, what does it do is it dispirits the, the, the base. So, so don't promise what you can't deliver. And that's, you know, what's going on here. Right. So the rhetoric of I'm the goddamn president, you're not, you're a loser, shut up. That wouldn't have worked. Well, it would have been a sugar high for his base for a while. Right. But what fundamentally would have changed? Right. No, I, right? I, I, I get it. I he, get he it. Focused, fact, he focused where he needed to focus, right? right. He focused well, I, on, you, on dealing, with, dealing with COVID and dealing with the economy. And fundamentally, in the end, if he can get the economy to the point where people feel they're gaining more than they're losing and he gets COVID under control, the guy can be reelected. And if he can't, he won't. And you know, God help them on the on the midterms. I don't know what's going to happen there. That's positive. But unfortunately, and this is unfortunate, but it's true. Republican voters are more fearful of losing, quote unquote, democracy than Democratic voters are like two to one. Most Democratic voters don't think Donald Trump and the Republicans are moving toward autocracy. You and I might think differently, but most most voters do not. That's a major shift that, you know, could he, had he talked every day about the importance of the fact of this, been effective in moving Democrats? Maybe, but it would have been, you know, at the, you know, you can only be talking about so many things. And every Democrat right now is facing this dilemma that their base doesn't believe we're on the verge of autocracy. And I mean, he did make some strong statements, but it's so clear that the Republicans would rather cheat than compete. I'm wondering whether the American sense of fairness could come into play. You know, if you are watching the Super Bowl and the ref makes an incredibly bad call that makes the losing side win, people in the 100,000 people in the stands would be really up in arms. So it just well, allows me to have you have, a, you have a rivalry between Republicans and Democrats where one side would be utterly delighted you know, for the ref to cheat, and they would say that it's justice, not cheating. Right. Well, just in closing then, Paul, you, you know, there are other articles in the current issue of the Washington Monthly I wanted to touch on, and you mentioned, Please. you know, the very slim margin that the Democrats have in the House with the two senators from Georgia squeaking by, and, and of course Warnock is really vulnerable coming up in the end of this year, they could have knocked off Susan Collins in Maine, perhaps. It's interesting to note that when Susan Collins voted for the confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh, Lindsey Graham came across to her and said, Shelley Adelson is going to throw money at you. And that's pretty much what happened, right? Along with the fact that the Democrat that they ran against her wasn't particularly effective. The Democrat they ran against her was a fine candidate. She was the, you know, uh, she was the leader of the of the House or Senate. I can't remember Sarah Gideon's her name. She was perfectly right. good candidate, solid candidate. The problem with Susan Collins for the Democrats, she's very good at her job. Um, she works uh, the state very well. People know her. She's back. She's doing a lot of local economic development stuff. They trust her. They love the fact that she studies. 
and she expresses concern and she's, you know, doesn't, she votes often enough against her party that she can have some fig leaf of credibility of being independent. And the problem is Democrats supported Susan Collins. Democrats kind of like quote unquote moderate Republicans, which is why, you know, Massachusetts supported Charlie Baker, their former moderate Republican governor. It's why in Maryland, they support Larry Hogan, the moderate Republican governor. Democrats will cross the aisle for what they uh, think is somebody who's not crazy. Um, Republicans occasionally return the favor, uh, which is why John Tester of Montana, the Democrat, is still in office. But they had a very tough opponent in Susan Collins, and they tried to paint her as a stooge of Donald Trump, and it didn't work. Hmm. Well, just in closing, the one thing we're learning today about the other Supreme Court justice among the three that Trump put on the court, Neil Gorsuch, that he refuses to wear a mask and yeah. he sits next to Sotomayor, who has un- you know underlying health problems, having diabetes and therefore vulnerable. She's not even going to the court. I find that unbelievable. That Just in closing, can the Supreme Court argument, which the Democrats use a lot, I mean, maybe by the time we're voting in uh, the end of the year, Roe v. Wade will have been overturned. So is that going to be a factor, do you think? You know, not that many Democrats historically have been moved to vote based on the court. Republicans much more so. Republicans for many, many years have been single-mindedly focused on shifting the court in their direction. Democrats have been in a kind of a rear guard action to keep the courts kind of where they are. And and the question you're asking is, is the overturning potential overturning of Roe v. Wade, uh, you know, or some of these other quite dramatic decisions enough to get Democrats to say, you know, wow, we have a problem. We're motivated to vote based on losing, losing these rights and losing the capacity to govern. And I don't know. I, you know, you, we'll just have to see. But I, I haven't seen it in the polling data. Right. Well, Paul, I thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Paul Glastras, who's the editor-in-chief of The Washington Monthly, who spent 10 years as correspondent and editor at U.S. News and World Report and was a special assistant and senior speechwriter to President Bill Clinton. He wrote over 200 speeches for the president on subjects ranging from education to health care and the budget. And his latest article at The Washington Post is What Joe Biden Should Say, a transcript of President Joe Biden's 2022 State of the Union Address, if he'd let me write it. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the Senate debate today on what appears to be a futile effort to change the filibuster rules. Public opinion may not be on your side. There are those who think they've been taken forward. You will get over it. I'm on your side, the guy. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Valeria Sinclair Chapman, a professor of political science and director of the Center for Research on Diversity and Inclusion at Purdue University, whose work focuses on American political institutions, legislative politics, minority representation in Congress, and minority political participation. 
and she is the author of Countervailing Forces in African-American Political Activism, 1973 to 1994. Welcome to Background Briefing, Valeria Sinclair Chapman. Thank you for having me. And today, Valeria, the United States Senate is debating the filibuster and how to get voting rights reform through this impediment of the filibuster. But the sad part of it is that it seems more like an exercise in naming and shaming. I think all of the speeches today are coming from Democratic senators to an empty chamber. There's not one Republican in the chamber. They don't want to know what's being said. So is this a futile exercise? Uh, no, I don't I don't think so. Um, it's not unusual that legislators in Congress speak to empty or are mostly empty chambers for um, speeches. They enter them into the congressional record. Um, and then we have a history, an archive of the kinds of the sentiment that uh, various legislators have. So I don't, I don't think that that's a waste of time or an empty gesture in any way. But do you think that there will be anything achieved? Do you think that either Senator's Mansion or Cinema will be moved? Um, it does not appear that either one of them will shift their positions. Um, it does seem to me that um, both uh, Manton and Cinema are um, in some ways standing on a kind of uh, taking a principled stand um, for institutions. Um, um, but I don't think that it is going to uh, be weighted well in comparison to the urgency of the moment. Um, and not uh, for partisan reasons, but because um, the Congress itself has a responsibility to respond to the call from another branch of government, the, the Supreme Court, that when they struck down uh, the preclearance requirements in uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, they basically said that Congress needed to take action to revise it. And, you know, after decades, um, decades since the 1965 passage of the Voting Rights Act, so they needed to revise it to reflect modern-day politics, and Congress is, is overdue to take action on it. It's the responsibility of Congress to do so. So, um uh, refusing to use the filibuster to answer this particular question on this narrow issue as a matter of principle, I think, um, does not serve the American public. Um, in addition to the courts asking Congress to take action, so are the American people. Um, and so while many will frame this as a partisan issue, um, ensuring that American citizens who are eligible to vote have easy access to the ballot, I think, is an important act of the nation's legislature in a democracy. But surely it appears that the Republican Party is simply not interested in arguments about voter reform. In fact, they're busily passing laws on state levels, which don't require the filibuster threshold, I might add, mm -hmm. that will make it difficult to vote will allow Republican legislatures in states to overturn results if they don't like them. There's an enormous amount of activity going on at the precinct level, Stephen Bannon's so-called precinct strategy, mm -hmm. where people, uh, traditionally neutral poll workers, are being 
harassed and quitting in droves and being replaced by partisans, like the kind of partisans that did the, the bogus uh, recount in Arizona. So mm-hmm. the landscape out there is pretty alarming, and many people I've been talking to lately are talking about you know, the possibility of, uh, of American democracy itself ceasing to exist in a matter of years. I actually, in in some ways, I can sympathize with that kind of position, to be honest with you. When you politicize poll workers, so so what do we know about poll workers historically? Mostly it's older citizens in your community. They know other people in the community. They are nonpartisan, even though they might vote in, and certainly vote in particular kinds of ways. They take their work seriously. They're trained. It's a nonpartisan job of people who actually reflect the interest of your community. One of the reasons why historically um, we could rely on a simple signature to, cert- uh, to signal, to validate your vote is because your signatures have to match. So if someone checks your signature, it's hard to fake someone else's signature when you sign in to vote. Um, but also because these people are from your community. So typically they know you or you see somebody else in line. It is very difficult to commit in-person voter fraud, right? And so now when we politicize poll workers, it's actually a significant problem. There's so much discretion that people can have about refusing certain kinds of IDs, just causing people um, challenges and sending them home um, or creating circumstances where people might cast um, provisional ballots that might never get counted. This is a significant problem. Um, and an interesting strategy. Here's what I see. Historically, um, Republicans and Democrats worked to ensure voter access. Um, So voting rights was a bipartisan issue. The extension of the 1982 voting, um, the 1982 extensions to the Voting Rights Act was uh, um, um, the the changes came together with both um, black Democrats and um, uh, members of the Republican Party. I mean, and so now, uh, decades later, to see this abandoning from people with morals and on the Republican side, the abandoning of voting rights in favor of a of an outright lie about cheating and fraud is so disappointing, and it is a dereliction of duty from the Republican side. Um, and so, it's really disappointing then that two Senate Democrats are are willing to allow that. Um, um, when this is purely political um, on the on the uh, um, for uh, Republicans in the Senate, and Mitch McConnell is really gambling on the kinds of changes that are happening at the state level. I see it like this: if you can't beat them, change the rules, right? And so these changes um, on the ground locally in in the states are really designed to change an electorate, right? Um, um, voting, uh, the, the turnout in voting shifts with bad weather when people have other things to do, right? So making it harder to vote, making, making lines longer, uh, reducing the number of polling places, reducing the number of days that people can turn out to vote, making it harder to cast um, mail-in ballots. All of these things actually change who turns out to vote. They reshape the electorate. And when you have uh, elections that are won by narrow margins, this is what you get. And we cannot forget that part of the reason why we're in this position now is certainly the 2020 election, 
but very much so the unexpected outcome of the the special election and the um the uh runoff elections in Georgia earlier this year. So well, when your old <clears throat> systems don't work, you change the rules. Well, indeed, but Senator Warnock barely won. He's up in exactly. a, in the end of the year and <laughs> They've certainly changed the rules down there. It's going to be a major uphill climb. Mm-hmm. And what I find really depressing is that the Republican sort of attitude they'd rather cheat than compete is across the board. And in fact, it's being pushed even further. The governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, who is clearly angling to become the nominee for the presidency, I don't know whether he and Trump will come to loggerheads. They may well. But DeSantis is actually setting up a new police force to enforce right. voter rules and voter laws, which it's a problem right. in Com- search of a solution. I mean, it's a exactly. solution in search of a problem because it doesn't right. exist. And what people are afraid of, what will happen in Florida, which is a key swing state, is that DeSantis's police force will, in fact, end up intimidating voters. Oh, absolutely. That is... That- so when when even when when the fall outrage took place around um, uh, President Biden calling this uh, Jim Crow 2.0, that's exactly what it is, right? The idea of partisan poll workers just um, brings to mind poll workers who would deny certain people, blacks in the 1960s, 1950s, um, access to the to the ballot. Um, uh, using literacy tests or 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 asking them to to you know to guess how many balls or gumballs are in a jar, right? The, the that a poll worker could have that kind of discretion to determine whether or not an individual can legitimately vote is problematic. The idea of having um, um, policing of polls. Here's the thing. We only get, on a good day, we only get about half of the American public voting. Um, Those numbers have certainly been going up over the last decade. Um, Obama's election in 2008 was a watershed moment, and elections have been increasing in numbers more or less since then. We've seen increasing turnout of African Americans across the country, which is a major issue, and certainly of Latino populations as well. We have a multiracial democracy, and, and there are those who would oppose that and who would restrict it. And so we could call it Jim Crow 2.0. We could call it a push for American apartheid. Um, I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but that is where I think we're headed if, in fact, um, eligible citizens are prevented from voting through technicalities or intimidation. And it's, it's just so disappointing that so many Republicans who love the institution, who love government, who, who value their, their work in the Senate, are towing the line um, with Mitch McConnell and the, the Trump efforts to undermine uh, faith and, uh, and belief in American elections. There's plenty wrong with American elections, even in a place like Georgia when the election is secure there's still real problems about polling places and long lines. And honestly, I think that it should take about as long to, to vote as it takes to buy a gallon of milk, right? We shouldn't have to wait in line for hours to vote. You shouldn't have to look all over the place for polling places. We should be making it easier for American citizens to cast their votes. It's a basic right of all Americans to give their consent to be governed. 
And that is where we should be headed in this Republican democracy that we have. Well, just in the last minute, the Quinnipiac poll that came out recently finds that black voters' support for Biden has dropped from 78% to 57% since the previous poll was taken in April of 2021. And after all, it was the African-American vote that had played a big part in Biden's election. So how do you see that going forward, that problem being solved? You know, I think that, again, um, the Republican uh, Mitch McConnell strategy, um, perhaps even in the House, but certainly in the Senate, which is so closely divided, is to cripple the president with his own base, right? Um, And so to make him look ineffective with his own base. I think that Biden has done some things really well, um, but there are some, some major key components of his agenda that he's been unable to get through. Uh, largely um, because of the Joe Manchins and the Kristen Cinemas of the world, who, for whatever reason, um, are unwilling to cooperate on a larger democratic agenda. And it's going to be costly. In terms of black public opinion, I can certainly understand it. They're saying, you know, um, if our vote is our pledge to you that we'll support you, then we'd like to see some return on that investment. Um, I think it was Malcolm X who said, you know, this is your poor, dumb vote. Um, I don't believe that black voters should withhold their votes. Um, I think that the party should better compete for their votes. And I'm hopeful that that, um, Biden will be able to recover because this is actually a Republican strategy to cripple him and and to cripple uh, the Democratic agenda. And unfortunately... Despite the valiant efforts of the House of Representatives, the Senate has been slow to come along. Um, And I I think I would just like to say in a a few seconds that um, I think that that, uh, Joe Manchin even is a man of principle. Um, I think that the growth of the Democratic Party is going to be amongst uh, more moderates and conservative uh, Democrats. So we're going to have to find a way to live in peace and and to, to make things work. But I do hope and pray by some miracle that that cinema and uh, mansion will vote with their their fellow partisans on this issue and allow for the greater good of the entire country, not just African Americans, young people, people of color, poor people, older people. Uh, these kinds of voting restrictions will affect all of them. Well, I thank you for joining us here today. Valeria Sinclair Chapman. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking to you. Well, likewise. And I've been speaking with Valeria Sinclair Chapman, a professor of political science and the director of the Center for Research on Diversity and Inclusion at Purdue University, whose work focuses on American political institutions, legislative politics, minority representation in Congress, and minority political participation. And she's the author of Countervailing Forces in African-American Political Activism, 1973-1994. to This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic, 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America My quiet voice was singing something to me One more light goes on